Westinghouse Broadcasting Company brings you The Sound of War, the actual sound record of World War II, 2,191 days from the time Hitler's Panzer divisions moved across the Polish borders to the ceremony of the Japanese surrender aboard the United States battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay. World War II, the most terrible period of death and destruction in the long history of man. World War II. A drama preserved for all time through the medium of radio. An era never to be forgotten. Tonight, France in torment. It was clear that at this critical moment in the war, what was needed was the formation of a government which would include members... You are listening to Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain of Great Britain. He is speaking to the British Empire and the world. In just a few minutes, he will no longer be head of the empire and its dominions beyond the seas. Great Britain is in crisis. German armies are on the march in Europe. After seven months, the war has erupted into unimaginable fury. capitulation of what has taken place. After Britain and France declared war against Germany on September 3rd, following the German invasion of Poland two days earlier, there was what historians call the phony war. Unable to effectively aid the Poles, France and Great Britain watched as Germany and her ally Russia squeezed Poland into submission from the west and east. Russia then invaded Finland, and after initial defeats, by overwhelming numerical force, made the courageous Finnish nation capitulate. Meanwhile, the quiet war on the Western Front was taking place. The Germans were making plans for the invasion of Scandinavia and the Low Countries. The British under Neville Chamberlain and France under Premier de Lavier were contentedly sitting back, unwilling to commit aggressive warfare. The German war machine needed the iron ore from rich Swedish mines. In London, Winston Churchill warned against the neutrality of Norway and Sweden. He demanded the British Navy impede the German accesses to Norway's neutral ports, where German ships had free access to Norway's sea lanes. But the British government refused to bring the war to neutral Scandinavia. In early April, Germany invaded Denmark and Norway. The Allies had again been outmaneuvered and outgeneraled. A token expeditionary force was sent by Britain to Norway. They were defeated. Back in the home island, the Chamberlain government was set upon by friend and foe alike for their conduct of the war. morning of May 7, 1940. In the House of Commons, Chamberlain tries to explain the failure of the Norwegian campaign. To his aid comes the First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. Said Churchill, I take complete responsibility for everything that has been done by the Admiralty, and I take my share of the burden. When he finishes, the floor is taken by David Lloyd George, Great Britain's World War I leader, and longtime enemy of Chamberlain. Said Lloyd George, 
I do not think the First Lord was entirely responsible for all the things that happened in Norway. Then facing Prime Minister Chamberlain, he said, you asked for the nation to perform sacrifice. I say solemnly that the Prime Minister should give an example of sacrifice by giving up his seals of office. Chamberlain will not resign. He says he will attempt to form a coalition government. It is May 10, 1940. BBC Home Service. Here is a short news bulletin. The German army invaded Holland and Belgium early this morning by land and by landing from parachutes. The armies of the Low Countries are resisting. An appeal for help has been made to the Allied governments, and Brussels says that Allied troops are moving to their support. Belgium and Luxembourg are invaded by the German war machine. The Wehrmacht also moves against France. The long-awaited blow against the West has begun. At 11 a.m. the morning of May 10th, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain summons his friend and colleague Winston Churchill and Lord Halifax for a meeting. Solemnly, he tells the two statesmen that he will be unable to form a coalition government, that he is ready to resign, that he is ready to see the king and present his recommendation for the new leader of the empire. Years later, Winston Churchill wrote that it was his understanding that Chamberlain preferred Halifax to him. There was a deathly silence in the room. Then Halifax spoke. He told Chamberlain that as a member of the House of Lords and not the House of Commons, it would not be feasible for him to run the government. Churchill remained silent. That night, Neville Chamberlain spoke to the Empire. It was clear that at this critical moment in the war, what was needed was the formation of a government which would include members of the Labour and Liberal oppositions. His Majesty has now entrusted to my friend and colleague, Mr. Winston Churchill, the task of forming a new administration on a national basis. At six o'clock that night, Winston Churchill writes, I was taken to the king. His majesty received me graciously and bade me sit down. He looked at me searchingly and quizzically for some moments and then said, I suppose you don't know why I have sent for you. Adopting his mood, I replied, Sir, I simply cannot imagine why. He laughed and said, I want you to form a government. Winston Churchill had become prime minister of the British Empire. Prime Minister Churchill spoke to the House of Commons. Said Churchill, you ask what is our policy. 
I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, and with all our might, and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Come then, let us go forward with our united strength. Churchill spoke the words that would be remembered for all time. I have never promised anything about blood, tears, toil, and sweat. There would be much sorrow before victory. The invasion of the Low Countries was complete devastating, catastrophic. The tiny Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, 55 miles long, 34 miles wide, fell in only a few hours. Luxembourg, neutral, independence guaranteed by all the great powers. Luxembourg, bounded on the north and west by Belgium, on the south by France. Luxembourg, the gateway to the great Ardennes battlefield of World War I, and a direct strike at the heart of France. Luxembourg, gone in less than one day. On May 12th, the German army crossed the French frontier while in Holland there was much misery. The famous dikes of Holland were released and the waters spread over the land. But the Nazi war machine was awesome and all-powerful. And in five days, after suffering more than 100,000 casualties, the Dutch army capitulated. Belgium fought on. But now the unbelievable. Incredibly, the German juggernaut, slicing through the Ardennes forest, passed through the seemingly impregnable Meuse barrier and opened a 50-mile breach between Namur and Sedan. The gateway to the French capital was open. The famed Maginot Line was bypassed. France was open to direct assault. Just six days after the initial assault on the Low Countries, the great German breakthrough had materialized. France, the nation with a military heritage, unequaled in victory and valor. The France that was Marshal Fush. My center is giving away. My right is pushed back. Excellent. I will attack. The France that is Henri Giraud. Men pass, but France is eternal. The France that would be Charles de Gaulle. France has lost a battle but France has not lost the war.
is May 19, 1940. Nine days since the attack. Luxembourg and Holland have fallen. Belgium is reeling from a death blow. The magnificent French army has been broken through and moves back on the great capital city of Paris. From London, the Prime Minister of but nine days has yet to speak personally to the British nation. It is now time. Mr. Churchill has just returned from an hour's flight to Paris. All is terrible in the French capital city. He has spoken to Premier Paul Reynaud, the successor to Edouard de Lardier, as head of the French government. Reynaud has told Churchill, we have been defeated. We are beaten. We have lost the battle. The front has broken at Sedan. They are pouring through. All is over. In London, Prime Minister Churchill will speak to the British Empire. It is May 19, 1940. To many, the words you are about to hear constitute the most magnificent speech ever made by mortal man. first time as Prime Minister in a solemn hour for the life of our country, of our empire, of our allies, and above all, of the cause of freedom. A tremendous battle is raging in France and Flanders. The Germans, by a remarkable combination of air bombing and heavily armored tanks, have broken through the French defenses north of the Maginot Line, and strong columns of their armored vehicles are ravaging the open country, which for the first day or two was without defenders. They have penetrated deeply and spread alarm and confusion in their track. Behind them, there are now appearing infantry in lorries, and behind them again, the large masses are moving forward. The regroupment of the French armies to make head against and also to strike at this intruding wedge had been proceeding for several days, largely assisted by the magnificent efforts of the Royal Air Force. We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated by the presence of these armored vehicles in unexpected places behind our lines. If they are behind our front, the French are also, at many points, fighting actively behind there. Both sides are therefore in an extremely dangerous position. And if the French army and our own army are well handled, as I believe they will be, if the French retain that genius for recovery and counterattack for which they have so long been famous, and if the British Army shows the dogged endurance and solid fighting power of which there have been so many examples in the past, then a sudden transformation of the scene might spring into being. It would be foolish, however, to disguise the gravity of the hour. It would be still more foolish to lose heart and courage or to suppose that well-trained, well-equipped armies numbering three or four millions of men can be overcome in the space of a few weeks or even months by a scoop 
or raid of mechanized vehicles, however formidable. We may look with confidence to the stabilization of the front in France and to the general engagement of the masses, which will enable the qualities of the French and British soldiers to be matched squarely against those of their adversaries. Churchill spoke, the magnitude of the German onslaught was known but not believed. There was chaos on the roads, the exodus from Paris had begun. All the way south to Bordeaux, the roads filled with cars, bicycles, taxi cabs, trucks, bakery vans, roadsters, anything and everything that had wheels. The sun was hot and spring seemed to turn into the intolerable heat of the summer. The deadly heat of the flame and smoke from shell and bomb mixed with the heat of thousands upon thousands of land machines covering the roads. The Paris roads were a montage of different heats, from the ground, from the sky. For myself, I have invincible confidence in the French army and its leader. Only a very small part of that splendid army has yet been heavily engaged. And only a very small part of France has yet been invaded. There is good evidence to show that practically the whole of the specialized and mechanized forces of the enemy have been already thrown into the battle. And we know that very heavy losses have been inflicted upon them. No officer or man, no brigade or division, which grapples at close quarters with the enemy wherever encountered, can fail to make a worthy contribution to the general result. The armies must cast away the idea of resisting attack behind concrete lines or natural obstacles, and must realize that mastery can only be regained by furious and unrelenting assault. And this spirit must not only animate the high command, but must inspire every fighting man. In the air, often at serious odds, often at odds, hitherto thought overwhelming, we have been clawing down three or four to one of our enemies. My confidence in our ability to fight it out to the finish with the German Air Force has been strengthened by the fierce encounters which have taken place and are taking place. At the same time, our heavy bombers are striking nightly at the taproot of German mechanized power and have already inflicted serious damage upon the oil refineries on which the Nazi effort to dominate the world directly depends. We must expect that as soon as stability is reached on the Western Front, the bulk of that hideous apparatus of aggression which dashed Holland into ruin and slavery in a few days, will be turned upon us. I'm sure I speak for all when I say we are ready to face it, to endure it, and to retaliate against it, to any extent that the unwritten laws of war permit.
civilians move south, while the French forces, not trapped by the onrushing German forces, move to the seaports for the escape to Great Britain. in this island, who when the ordeal comes upon them, and come it will, will feel comfort and even a pride that they are sharing the perils of our lads at the front, soldiers, sailors and airmen, God bless them, and are drawing away for them a part at least of the onslaught they have to bear. Is not this the appointed time? for all to make the utmost exertion in their power. If the battle is to be won, we must provide our men with ever-increasing quantities of the weapons and ammunition they need. We must have, and have quickly, more aeroplanes, more tanks, more shells, more guns. There is imperious need for these vital munitions. They increase our strength against the powerfully armed enemy. They replace the wastage of the obstinate struggle and the knowledge that wastage will speedily be replaced enables us to draw more readily upon our reserves and throw them in now that everything counts so much. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. After this battle in France abates its force, there will come the battle for our island. For all that Britain is and all that Britain means, that will be the struggle. I have received from the chiefs of the French Republic and in particular from its indomitable Prime Minister, Monsieur Reynaud, the most sacred pledges that whatever happens, they will fight to the end, be it bitter nor be it glorious. Nay, if we fight to the end, it can only be glorious. Having received His Majesty's commission, I have formed an administration of men and women of every party and of almost every point of view. We have differed and quarreled in the past. But now one bond unites us all. To wage war until victory is won. And never to surrender ourselves to servitude and shame. Whatever the cost and the agony may be. If this is one of the most awe-striking periods in the long history of France and Britain, it is also, beyond doubt, the most sublime. Side by side, unaided except by their kith and kin in the great dominions and by the wide empires which rest beneath their shield. Side by side, the British and French peoples have advanced to rescue not only Europe, but mankind from the foulest and most soul-destroying tyranny which has ever darkened and stained the pages of history. Behind them, behind us, behind the armies and fleets of Britain and France, gather a group of shattered states and bludgeoned great races, the Czechs, the Poles, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Dutch, the Belgians, 
upon all of whom the long night of barbarism will descend, unbroken even by a star of hope. Unless we conquer, as conquer we must, as conquer we shall. minister had spoken. France was reeling. The British Empire would soon fight alone. The French people were in agony. France was in torment. Produced and directed by Bud Greenspan. My name is David Perry. <laughs>